Good morning. Question. Do you believe in God our Father? Do you believe in Christ our Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the resurrection that we will that we'll rise again? And, and are you are you totally blown away by the scandal of grace? I mean, seriously. Does it make your heart skip to think that Jesus Christ, that he died in your place? And do you agree that nothing, nothing compares to the wonderful and beautiful name of Jesus? And are you honored to be in his presence this morning? And, and are, you, are you grateful and thankful for his unending mercy and overwhelming grace? What a privileged people we are to worship and serve a God like our God. Amen? Amen. Now, now, I want to read a few passages that will, uh, that will set the stage for our conversation this morning. And remember to lean in, uh, because what you're about to hear was literally breathed by God. Uh, the first passage is in John chapter 11. Jesus' good friend Lazarus, he's been dead for four days, and Jesus is just showing up. On the scene, beginning at verse 30, John chapter 11. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell out his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come, see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus, Jesus wept. The next passage is from Luke chapter 19. Jesus is nearing the city of Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday Uh, The streets are lying with thousands of people waving palm branches and shouting Jesus' praises. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. I mean, it it was quite a party and celebration going on. And Luke, who wasn't there at the time, probably wrote these words beginning at verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to, to weep. I wish today that all of you people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is now hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and circle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And the final passage is James chapter 4. And James is calling out God's people. He's calling out me. He's calling out you. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. You adulterous people, right? That's the way to begin a sermon, right? Your first time visitor. You adulterous people, right? I mean, come on, bro, a little harsh there. You adulterous people, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? Uh, They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he he will come close to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Uh, let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Father God, hopefully we are humbling ourselves before you. You're a great, mighty, powerful, holy God. You are before all things, over all things, and God, you hold all things together. And God, we may clean up the outside of our cup, God, but you see deep into our hearts. God, you know us, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, our struggles. And God, I just pray today that your word uh, will just penetrate deep into my heart and the hearts in this room. God, help me to say what you want me to say today and the way that you want me to say it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this week two of our series uh, the end of me, where real life begins. Uh, uh, where does real life begin? When we get to the end of, of me. Turn to the person right and left and look in the eye and say, I got to get to the end of me. I got to get to the end of me. Here are a few end of me verses. The first is from Jesus. If you cling to your life, live for me, you'll lose it. And if you let your life go, the end of me, you will save it. Real life will begin. There's the next verse. We read this one last week. You died to this life, the end of me, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Listen, if you want real life, if you want a full life, then you must get to the end of me. Because here's the deal. Me is what is keeping you from the life that God has for you. Get it? Good. Now, now who in this room, raise your hand if you want a real life, a full life, a blessed life. Raise your hand. And if you don't, you're in the wrong place, right? You can feel free to get out of here, right? Because you're not going to like what we're talking about. All right. Then you know what we got to do, right? We got to get to the end of me. And so everybody please stand on your feet, uh, and uh, that's usually how I stand. And, and what we're going to do, uh, we're going to read this, you're going to act like this is your words, right? And, and this is from the book, um, The End of Me, uh, that chapter, a note to me, the final part of it that I read last week. And so we got to get to the end of me, so on a count of three, we'll start reading together. I know we won't have the same cadence and all that, but it'll be good. On count of one, two, three. I love you, me. But I can't keep living for you. You always insisted that if I just keep you happy, then I'd be happy. As simple as that. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. It never has been. Me, I've let you be in control and sit in the driver's seat, but it's clear you can't be trusted. You keep insisting you know the way we should go, but it always seems to be a dead end. I've looked into some other options, and I've decided to begin a journey down a different path. It's narrow and difficult, and not many choose it, but it leads to real and abundant life. However, and there's no easy way to say this, I can't take this path if I bring you along. So me, this is the end of you. Sincerely, me. Amen. You can be seated. The end of me is where real life begins. So the million-dollar question is, how do we get there? 
<laughs> How do we get to the end of me? Well, the good news is that Jesus gave us some pretty uh, powerful um, clues as he kicks off his ministry in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Now, now he begins uh, the Sermon on the Mount with what uh, we call the, the Beatitudes. And each beatitude begins with the word blessed. So Jesus says, do you want to be blessed? And everybody says, yes, we want to be blessed. And then he says, blessed are you who? And then he begins to list eight different characteristics of a life that is blessed, a life that is blessed by God. And listen, one thing is clear right out of the gates is that these eight characteristics are kind of crazy. They're counterintuitive. They don't make a lot of sense. They are paradoxical. They are oxymoronical, right? I make that word up, I think. Now, paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigator explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. Here's some paradoxes. We're building the suspense. Nobody goes to that restaurant, it's too crowded. <laughs> Don't go near the water till you've learned how to swim. Slowly get it, right? Uh, uh, the man who wrote such a stupid sentence cannot write at all. If you get this message, call me. If you don't get it, don't call me. Uh, this is the beginning of the end. I'm going to start thinking positive, but I know it won't work. I'm not schizophrenic, and neither am I. <laughs> and, and, and here are some, you know, oxymorons. It's a figure of speech. In, in which apparently contradictory terms appear next to each other. Here, here's some ones. Bittersweet, act naturally, found missing, gumbo shrimp, original copies, clearly misunderstood, pretty ugly, seriously funny, new classic, even odds, same difference, civil war, Microsoft works. And I got this one from someone from NGX, so don't come after me. Military intelligence, right? Or my all-time favorite, country music, right? <laughs> okay. So Jesus says, okay, you say you want to have a real life, a full life. Well, here's how to make that a reality. And so Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this very counterintuitive and contradictory statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. I mean, can we just agree that that doesn't make a lot of sense? You know, like, like happy are the, are the sad? Now, last week we looked at the beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And we talked about how this is counterintuitive to us because we usually equate blessings with, uh, with being rich. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But we don't see it that way. We think blessed are the self-sufficient. Blessed are the self-reliant. Blessed are those who, who help themselves. But Jesus says, no, you got it backwards. He says there's a real blessing when you embrace your brokenness and you ask God for help. And you say, God, I can't help myself. I, I can't fix it. I can't mend it. I can't restore it. I, I can't redeem it. I can't put the pieces back together. I can't do it. God, I need help. And in that moment, Jesus says, we create space for God's blessings. And church, we did that very thing last week. I gotta tell you, it was pretty awesome. Over 100 people last week embraced their brokenness, and they asked God for help. Uh, they filled out a card, they placed it in the baskets that are off to the side, and they rang a bell declaring, God, I need help. Lord, help me with my anger. 
Uh, Lord, help me with my anxiety. Lord, help me with my worry. Help me with my marriage. Help me with my depression. Help me with my loneliness. Help me with my walk with you. Help me with my fear. Help me with my doubt. Help me with my family. Uh, this week, the elders and I, we spent three hours praying over each card. We held each card in our hand, and we took time to pray for each card because each card represented a person. We said, God, I need help. And by the way, those, those baskets are going to stay here, and the bells are going to stay here so that you can maybe put another card in if you need to, and so that during our response time, that maybe you can pull a card out and pray for it and stick it back in. You pull a card out, and you pray for that person, whatever that prayer is. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it's counterintuitive, but we found it to be true. But blessed are the mourn, those who mourn, again, that's not just counterintuitive, that seems contradictory. I mean, think it through. He said, happy are the sad. <laughs> happy are the unhappy. I mean, how is that even possible? How can there be a blessing in the midst of sorrow? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, there's nine different words that Jesus could have used uh, for that word mourn. He picked the strongest word, a word that carries the deepest meaning of grief, like the grief and mourning you would feel if you lost a loved one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And you know, I, I think we're not inclined to believe that. In fact, I think we don't even necessarily want that to be true. Happy are the sad. Happy are the depressed. Happy are the sorrowful. I mean, can you remember the last time you did this? I mean, the last time where you were just overwhelmed with sorrow and grief and you mourn, I mean, you just wept and the sobbing and the shaking of your body was almost uncontrollable. Not fun, was it? I mean, if, there, if I had a sign-up sheet that said, hey, anybody who would like to mourn deeply this week and experience sorrow, would you please sign that paper and we'll see if we can make that happen for you. Would you sign up? Comfort, yes, but more, not, not, not so much. Kind of like last week, we said that all of us want to be made whole, but we don't want to be broken. All of us want to be comforted, but we don't want to mourn. And we're like, hey, Jesus, you know, can we just skip the mourning and move right to the comfort? Or better yet, Jesus, could we just say, blessed are those who... Never mourn, because they'll never need to be comforted. Uh, but brothers and sisters, that's not the way, that's not the way of the kingdom. Uh, that's not the way to a blessed life and a real life. That's, that's not the yoke. That's not the teaching of Jesus, our rabbi. And nevertheless, I think that mourning is something that we tend to struggle with as Jesus followers. I mean, we're, we're not quite sure what to do with it. I mean, we would much rather... When it comes to mourning, avoid it, deny it, numb it, cover it up, run away for it. And if we got to go through it, let's go through it really, really fast. A guy named Brian Zahn in his book, Beauty Will Save the World, Rediscovering the Allure and Mystery of Christianity, he talks about the struggle we have with mourning. He writes, we have an immature obsession with being happy all the time. It's in our culture. 
seeps into our churches, and it's not healthy. I think sometimes we're trying to replace the symbol of the cross with a smiley face. Serious Christianity has given way to inspirational Christianity, which is turning into insipid Christianity. Have we replaced the serious theology of the cross with the pop psychology of happiness? Have we traded something sublime and serious and majestic and mysterious for something silly, prosaic, and shallow? A juvenile obsession with cheap happiness? I don't think I'm overstating the problem. Because we're uncomfortable with sorrow, we passively enforce a kind of mandated happiness in our churches. Instead of weeping with those who weep, we want everybody to just cheer up. We want them to cheer up for our sake because we're so terribly uncomfortable with their sorrow. What we should do instead is join them in their sorrow and assist them in the work of grief. When human beings suffer tragically in profound loss, there's a certain amount of grieving that is required. The question is, can we create churches that understand that mourning is not a sign of weakness, but a spiritual work to be attended to, a spiritual work that Jesus says leads to the blessedness of comfort from outside ourselves. Man, I think I nailed it. And what I'm trying to say is that it's okay to mourn. It's natural to mourn. In fact, it's even necessary to mourn, especially in three specific areas that I want to draw our attention to this morning. But Grove, brothers and sisters, in your loss, mourn. Don't fight it. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Don't pretend. Don't so quickly try to turn that frown upside down. Just do it. Just mourn. Just weep and let the tears flow. Hey, did you notice in John 11 that when Jesus shows up to the home of Mary and and Martha, everyone is weeping and mourning? You notice what Jesus didn't say? Hey, y'all, cheer up. Stop that crying. Stop that mourning. I mean, I'm the resurrection of life. Knock it off. He didn't say that. He said he wept. He, he wept because of their great loss. And he, he wept because he loved Lazarus. And he wept because loss was not how it was ever intended to be in his world. And your loss... Maybe a lost job, a lost relationship, a lost dream, lost health, and your loss, mourn. I understand loss is, is inevitable. It's, we'll all experience it. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Jesus says in this world you, you will have trouble. Bottom line, loss is a part of life. You, you either had it, you're having it, or, or you're going to have it. Yes, like it or not, that's the way it works. It's just part of our story in this falling world. Get it? Good. I was reading this week about a time when Ernest Hemingway was sitting with a bunch of authors having lunch, and they made him a $10 bet. It must have been a long time ago, right? And they said, hey, we bet you that you can't write a story with just six words. And he took them up on their bet, and here is the six words he wrote down on a napkin. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. There's a story in those six words. And perhaps you too could write six different words of your story of loss. Your cancer isn't responding to treatments. I'm going through with a divorce. Your position is no longer needed. There has been a terrible accident. 
I, I can't be with you anymore. Your mom fell down the stairs. You will never have any children. Mom, dad, I was sexually abused. It's the bank. They are foreclosing. I just want to be friends. Sad stories. Difficult stories. Sorrowful stories. And Jesus, our rabbi, says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, in the series, we're studying the Beatitudes, and we're just finding that Jesus takes our assumptions of what a blessed life looks like, and he flips them, he turns them upside down. I mean, we tend to think, right, that blessed are those who have everything go their way. Blessed are those who health is fine. You know, blessed are those who life is just rainbows, butterflies, and ponies, right? Blessed are those who all their dreams come true. But Jesus says that there's a blessing in loss. In fact, he says that there's a blessing that can only come through loss and that can only come through tears. And listen, brothers and sisters, as upside down as that may seem, I, like many others in this room, have found that to be true. Seriously, for real. People like you and I have found that in the midst of a loss, a blessing that was never expected showed up. And what was that blessing? God's peace God's love and God's presence in a deeper and fuller way than we had ever experienced before. You see, like James says, in our loss, we drew near to God and God drew near to us. There's a guy in the Old Testament who I think is the gold standard for this very thing. His name is Job. And when we meet Job, he's kind of living large. He was living a blessed life, at least for his time. And here how his life is going. And it says he had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep. Now that, now that isn't blessed for me. I, I wouldn't want one sheep, let alone 7,000 sheep to clean up after, right? But apparently for him, that's like a really good thing in those days. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he's living this blessed life. Things could not get any better. Then all of a sudden, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. A tornado knocks down the house, kills all his children. He loses his health. He has painful sores from his head down to his feet. His wife didn't leave him, which he probably wish she did. Because all she did is say, give up on God, curse God, and die. Just loss after loss after loss after loss. But in the midst of this... Job says this to God and lean in church because this is so rich. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, God, something awesome has happened. In the midst of the loss, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering and mourning and the tears, I found you in a way I've never had before. I mean, I studied about you. I knew about you. I believed in you. But you have walked with me through this darkness, and now I see you in a new way. Now my eyes have seen you, and what a sight it is. I don't know about you, but that's how it's worked for me in the midst of some of my greatest losses. I mean, God showed up, and he drew near, and he became more and more real. I mean, God came riding into my, my, my darkness, bringing with him his presence and his comfort. I mean, it was like he was right there with me, holding me, carrying me, 
speaking to me like he did on August the 8th, 1996. It, it was 11 days after my wife Judy lost her battle with cancer and went home to a reward. And I was on a road trip to Maine with my, my son John, age nine, and my daughter Chelsea, age 12. And here, here's what I wrote. In my, it's actually up here. It's kind of a little worn, my journal. Uh, Thursday, August 8th, 1996, 5.40 a.m. Lord, I'm about, to get, I'm about to begin another day. We're in Fayetteville, North Carolina at Holiday Inn. Yesterday was a hard time. I cried a lot while driving. No one knew they were either playing Sega or sleeping. <laughs> I miss Judy so much. I'm not sure what I need to read to hear from you. I think I'll try Philippians. Please, God, speak to me during this trip. Then I read Philippians 1, 1 through 30, and verse 12, make me write this. Lord, what has happened to me, my loss can serve to advance the gospel. Verse 19, Paul rejoiced in his chains. Why? For I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Lord, I know you can turn this around. The young guy at Cracker Barrel in the men's room <laughs> read my T-shirt. He was a young Christian going to New Jersey. I asked him to pray for me. I think he did. I felt peace when we left. Lord, give me the courage so that I can glorify you through my hardship. And the final answer that day I wrote, I feel as if I'm on a mountaintop with you, Lord. And it is wonderful. And my ears have, have heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Message Bible says, blessed are you when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then will you be embraced by the one most dear to you. A loss is a part of life. And I just want to recommend the book here. I get no royalties from it. Uh, the book is called A Grace Disguised Growing Through Loss by Gerald Sitzer. Um, when Judy died, I went to the bookstore and said, I need a book. And I grabbed all these books off the bookshelf about loss and like, nah, 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 nah. And then I grabbed this guy's book and said, yo, this is the one. Because this guy was driving his van one night and, and a drunk person crossed a double line and he was in a, an accident and he, his mom died, his wife died, and his youngest daughter died. Three generations. And he wrote a book. And the book is called A Disguised Grace Growing Through Loss. I have given copies of that book out countless times to people. It's amazing. Matter of fact, this morning I Facebooked somebody who got from my heart and said, what's your address? They live in Atlanta now. I want to send you a book because I know they're really grieving hard the loss of their son. I go, hey, I think this could, I think this could help them. I think this could help them. Brothers and sisters, in your loss, mourn. Draw near to God. Yeah, yeah, I know you heard of him and you read about him, and but you can see him with your eyes. Next, for the lost world, mourn. And, and I'm going to go through this one rather quickly because I want to save time for my final point. But even though I'm going quick, don't let it, Make you think it's not important. For the lost world, mourn. But as he, as Jesus, on Palm Sunday, came closer to the city, he began to weep. 
Everybody's praising, celebrating. He's on a donkey and he's weeping and he's crying. His, his whole body is just heaving and sobbing. Why? Because he knew the city was lost. He knew that the people had rejected him. And he knew that that rejection one day would become with a heavy cost. When is the last time that you, that I, that we cried for a lost world? Yeah, the church, we're good at pointing fingers, hanging banners, criticizing. But when is the last time we cried for the brokenness, for the abuse, for the addictions, for the sorrow, for the anger, for the hatred? When have we mourned for the world? The psalmist says, tears stream from my eyes because people do not obey your teachings. In my studies this week, I came across a title for a sermon. I really wanted to find the sermon, but I couldn't find it. But the title is really awesome. And let's not be this. A dry-eyed church in a hell-bound world. Man, let's not be that. Let's not be having our party celebrating our salvation our blessings in Christ with the world around us that's lost. Amen? I don't want to be that church. So if that's your goal, this is not the church for you, okay? And your lost mourn, for the lost world mourn. And here's where we're going to get real. And we're getting real at Maple Grove because you can't have real life if you're not real. For your own sin, mourn. Is sin a big deal? Is your sin a big deal? Now, I know we don't really like that word that much, even in church, right? We, we try to tweak it because sin sounds so offensive, so judgmental, so politically incorrect. So let's call it mistakes. Let's call it failures, right? Now let's call it a slip-up. Let's call it wrong choices. Let's call it my bad. But let me be perfectly clear. Your sin, my sin, our sin is a very big deal. You want some proof? Okay. I think, I think some words, just a few words from the pen of Isaiah should let you know how big of a deal your sin is. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that, that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced. For our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we can be healed. So, is your sin a big deal? Yeah. Your sin and my sin weighed Jesus down. It pierced Jesus. It punished Jesus. It crushed Jesus. It whipped Jesus. It beat Jesus. It caused Jesus to be despised and rejected and crucified. Hashtag truth. Hashtag own it. For your own sin, mourn. And so throughout Scripture, we see this connection between mourning over sin and receiving God's blessings. Israel often mourned together as a nation and as a nation received God's blessing. Now, one of the most powerful examples in Scripture of an individual mourning of sin is David. Uh, David, as you may remember, had an affair with Bathsheba, a married woman. And, and, and by the time the dust settled, not only did he have an affair with her, he had her husband murdered. Other soldiers died as collateral damage. He took her for his own wife, and he was living a lie. And in Psalm 32, David describes 
this time of sin and his time of repentance. And he just talks about how the blessing, you know, the blessing, it, it was not a part of his life until, until he mourned for his sin. Here's what he says. When I kept silent, you know, when I was living in denial, when I wasn't broken, before I repented, when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Yeah, I know that denial seems like a good idea at the time. It's a path of least resistance. But let me tell you, you do not want to go where that path leads. Have you ever experienced the blessing of facing up to your sin? It's amazingly liberating. But it said we put so much energy into running away from our sin, hiding our sin, uh, pretending it's not sin, that it's someone else's fault, not our own. And as we run, we feel our strength draining away just like David did. And listen, no amount of time at the gym will make up for it because there's a leak somewhere. And it seems to be coming from deep inside of us. But, but sooner or later we stop running because we no longer have any place to run to. And that's when we find the missing strength. He writes, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And then I covered my, up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my, my transgressions to the Lord. And, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In Psalm 51, David confesses the sin and he says to God, purify me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. And down in verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise See, that's what God is looking for in order to pour his blessings into our life, a broken and contrite heart. However, that's not how most of us deal with our sin, right? I mean, when is the last time you shed a tear for your sin and what it cost Jesus? When's the last time? Have you ever shed a tear for your sin and for what it costs Jesus. I understand what many of us have learned and like to do is to apologize. We learn to say, God, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that. My bad. It was a mistake. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what invites the blessing of God into your life. And, oh, sorry, God. That's not what God is looking for. No, he's looking for a broken heart. He's looking for a contrite spirit. It's not just an apology. It's mourning. It's not just a confession because you got caught. No, it's coming clean because you have offended God. It's not just saying sorry to your spouse because of how you spoke to them or apologizing to a coworker or a friend because of what you did to them. It's understanding, as David did, that against you only have I sinned. I sinned against you, God. Understand, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not speaking of a sorry I got caught spirit or a sorry about that spirit. Like you spill a glass of water at the restaurant and you didn't mean to and now somebody else has to clean it up. <laughs> but we treat our sin that way. Oh, sorry, I just spilled 
That's a brokenhearted grief that's marked with tears. William Barclay in his commentary in this passage says this, look, the Greek word for the mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It's defined as a kind of grief that takes such a hold of a man that it cannot be hid. Some of the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart is the sorrow of the mourning that brings the unrestrainable tears to the eye. And here's the deal. I'm not sure that if we haven't shed a tear for it yet, haven't cried over it, that we're ready for God to bless us. Are you tracking with me? I mean, I know you're sorry. I know you know things need to go differently, but have you wept over your sin? Because until you weep over your sin, I'm not sure that, that we are really inviting God's blessing in our life. Thomas Watson preached a sermon on this passage in the 1600s, and he said this, tears melt God's heart and bind his hand. But that's not how we respond to sin. Uh, this week I was thinking, like, what's the opposite of, of mourning? You know, the opposite of mourning is, is, like, is like laughing. And, and, and now, now, how do most of us culturally react to sin in ourselves and the world around us? We make light of it, right? You don't believe that? And you watch reality show, watch comedians, right? I mean, they take simple things and they just make a joke out of it, right? They just, make, you know, exact opposite. Listen, when it comes to sin, to your sin, and understand you have sin, all right? First John 1 John 1.8 says, if you say you do not have sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you, right? So you've got sin. And James gives some great advice to all of us who have sin. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter in the morning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So is anybody mourning out there? I mean, where is the person who is grieving, mourning, and wailing over their selfishness and pride? Uh, Where is a person who is grieving, mourning, and wailing over their sinful sexual lifestyle? Where is a person grieving, mourning, and wailing over how they use their tongue to hurt and destroy people? Where is a person grieving, mourning, and wailing over their anger and and their bitterness? Where is a person grieving and mourning and wailing over their lukewarmness? Where is the husband who's grieving and mourning and wailing because he is not loving his wife as Christ loves the church? You see, grieving, mourning, and wailing is what invites God's blessing into our lives. It's not smiling and laughing. It's not pretending everything's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Yes, you're blessed when you're brokenhearted over your own sin, when your eyes fill with tears at the thought of what your sin has cost Jesus. Yes, blessed are you when you're brokenhearted over your sin, when your eyes fill with tears at the thought of what your sin cost Jesus. I, I, I don't do this enough. However, I did it recently, just wept. I'm talking, bring on the paper towel, snot blowing, weeping. 
It was so cleansing. It, it, it was so freeing. And God was so good. Now, the Old Testament, God's people sometimes responded to their sin with a period of mourning called penitential warning, mourning. And it lasts anywhere from 70 to 30 days. As you study Scripture, you see that many times God's people mourning resulted in blessings. And what they would do many times as a symbol of the mourning, they would wear sackcloth, right? It was very uncomfortable. It was an outer expression of their repentance. It was an outward sign of their inner surrender. And that's what we're going to do today. You know, at the stations today, as we sing this next song, an opportunity, and you can see on your chairs, I, I repent of. And there's little black trash boxes at, at the three stations where we have the bells. You know, and, and what I'm just going to challenge you, right? And, and here's the crazy thing, and I, I just got to say this. And John, picture this. John chapter 7, right? A, a religious dude, Simon, throwing a party. All those other religious dudes there, right? They, all, they got all their word, words wearing, chest. I'm religious. I'm a really good rule follower. Aren't I awesome? Don't you want to be like me, right? It's amazing this sinful woman crashed a party. <laughs> but she did. And she crashes this party, and she's lost, and she's broken. And she weeps at Jesus' feet after pouring perfume on him. She dries his feet with her hair. And Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven. And, and, and everybody got upset. Hey, you, you can't do this. And I'm thinking that, like, she recognized she was a sinner. And she went home with forgiveness. And no one else asked. I mean, God was right there. And they could have said, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. But no one else. Not Simon, none of his religious friends, none of them asked. I'm going to tell you, you are a sinner. The Bible says if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. <laughs> this is not true. And it is a big deal. And it does matter. I just want to encourage you to come clean before God. Write it out. Drop that in the basket. And then you get you a piece of string. You know, I got, I got one on right here, you know, and, and, and you tie it around your wrist this week to remind yourself to mourn, to mourn for the sins in our world and to mourn for your own sins. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So here's how it's going to go down. The team's coming up right now. We're going to sit, as we're singing this song, you know, Write whatever God said. You need to repent of this. Quit blowing it off. Quit minimizing it. Quit excusing it. Quit rationalizing it. Quit numbing it. Right? Own it. And he'll let you know. If he's like me, he's got a zero one out because it's like, it's, you know, it's like a fire hose with my sin sometimes. You know, but, but he'll know the one that you need to deal with right now. And you just write it up. And you put it in that trash can. You know? And you grab this thing here just to remind you this week. You know, I need to mourn for my sin. I need to mourn for the sin of the world. Because those who mourn will be comforted. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song. And as we're singing, after we're done with that, we'll come back, and I'll pray for our communion time. Heavenly Father, God, we are an adulterous people. <laughs> uh, we keep making friendship with the world. But your grace is greater than our sin. 
Your mercy is new every morning. And you say that if we acknowledge and confess our sins, there is forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray you move in the hearts of every person in this room, Lord, that, that they'll repent of what they need to repent of. And God, that they'll grab this little reminder this week to take with them so we'll spend a week of mourning. And Jesus, thank you for the cross. And Lord, thank you that because your blood was poured out, that we were washed and we're white as snow. I pray the enemy does not have a victory here. I pray against the sin of pride and I pray for a spirit of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.